How do, what, what is the science of story? How do we tell stories that work that are effective about the, uh, the human and human relationship with the natural world? Um, it gets into rhetoric, it gets into journalism, but also it gets into personal, personal stories and memoir style uh, conversations about what it means to be human in this, in this day and age. This is A New Angle, and I'm your host, Justin Angle, marketing professor at the University of Montana. This podcast is my chance to speak with cool people doing awesome things in and around the great state of Montana. Thanks for tuning in this week. Before we get into today's episode, I wanted to make a special announcement about our editor and producer, executive producer, Stefan Borsum. Stefan um, is a graduate of our, biz- of our business program here at the University of Montana, 2017 graduate. And I asked him if he would be interested in launching this podcast with me and he jumped on the opportunity, and it's just been doing awesome work. Um, and we sort of started this thing flying by the seat of our pants with a, I say a shoestring budget. It's not even, you know, not even a budget. So, we, we, you know, Stefan came in at a critical, critical time and, um, and made things happen. And it was with kind of a heavy heart, um, but excitement for him that we sort of bid him farewell from the producer role. He's going to be moving into some uh, more marketing, audience development, going to be sort of uh, pulling the lens out and looking at some big, big picture stuff. So I can't thank Stefan enough for his contributions to this endeavor, and I look forward to working with him in the future. Thank you, Stefan. Um, okay, today's guest, Nick Triolo. Nick is, gosh, the only way I can describe Nick is he is a true Renaissance man. I met Nick through the running community um, when we both lived in the Pacific Northwest and uh, shared the trail over many an ultra marathon and got to know him a little bit more professionally through some of his film work and his environmental advocacy work. And then he recently was a student in the environmental studies graduate program here at the University of Montana. And his goal in that program was to study the tools of narrative to make a difference in the environmental space. He is an advocate, he's an activist, he is a writer, he's a communicator, he's a leader, he's a mountain athlete, he's a guide. He basically is exploring all the different possible tools he has at his disposal with the many gifts he has to get people engaged and concerned and active in the environment and um, trying to make the world around us a better place. Nick's an inspiring guy. We had the opportunity to sit down. It was one of those rare Montana summer experiences where, you know, I was coming into town and he was leaving town an hour later and the planets aligned well enough for us to sit down and, and record the pod. I thank him for his generosity. Super engaging guy. And uh, let's turn it over to Nick Triolo. Okay, so we're here today with Nick Triolo. Nick, thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. So this is, uh, I will say, like a strange overlapping of time windows. I'm straight in from Big Sky, and you are about to uh, leave for Portland, and we had about an hour of overlap here in Missoula after five sort of failed years of both living here and failing to get together for much. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, so thanks for making it happen. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. I guess these so, microphones yeah. have a tendency to uh, actually create a good excuse for people to get together. I'm, I'm happy that you have them. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. So, Nick, you are a 2016, I guess, graduate of our of our Master's in Environmental Studies program. Is that correct? True. True. Okay. Yep. And how, I mean, I don't even know how to introduce you. I mean, you are a writer, you're a mountain runner, a guide, an activist, a filmmaker, just a guy that kind of 
exudes creativity and hustle on so many dimensions. How would you kind of, what would you be your elevator pitch if somebody said, hey, Nick, what do you do? <laughs> That's a really good question. Uh, yeah, I think you hit it on the nose. Um, yeah, at this, at this point in my life, I feel like I'm exploring a lot of a few different hats at the moment. But I, I, I came to Missoula in 2013 with an, an interest in learning how to tell better stories. Uh-huh. Um, so it's an, a master's of science and environmental studies here at the U and there's a wing, like a creative nonfiction, uh, focus. Okay. And so how do we, how do, what, what is the science of story? How do we tell stories that work that are effective about the, uh, the human and human relationship with the natural world? Yeah. Um, it gets into rhetoric, it gets into journalism, but also it gets into personal, personal stories and memoir style. Uh, conversations about what it means to be human in this in this day and age. I was interested in that. Uh, I have been for a long time, and that totally kind of dovetailed uh, with with a kind of heightened sense of advocacy work and, and activist work in the Pacific Northwest. Um, and it also kind of somehow finagled its way into like endurance endurance activities and mm-hmm. um, how I know you uh, through the long distance running community right. and what that those kind of uh, intersecting. Uh, circles of influence have done to kind of orchestrate this um, new uh, kind of identity of, of really interested in, in being a student of story craft, uh, how, how, to hack new sto- how to hack a new story about the, our relationship with the natural world. Um, and that is through deep immersion in wild space. That is through deep community efforts. That is through learning how to mobilize people and, and mobilize myself to take action about things I care about. Um, so yeah, so uh, yeah, I want to get into you know the 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 how the tools that you've acquired along the way and, and maybe that this program helped you build and what you're planning to do with those. But before that, I'd like to just kind of get into you know by way of some bio, what sort of brought you to this position where you felt like my life's work is to tell important stories and to get people engaged on you know issues about the natural world. Yeah. Um... I guess it comes from it comes from uh, deep interest in story because of of being affected by stories, being okay. you know being um, the product of someone who is a book nerd growing up, who spent hours and hours in my treehouse, uh, escaping you know the world to immerse myself in new worlds uh, in, in in books and realizing the power, like the the deep kind of intuitive power of what a story can do to change the way you see the world. What were some of the first that really struck you? Um, gosh, you know, the, one of the first books that totally woke me up to big literature was uh, Crime and Punishment. Mm-hmm. Um, that was, I, and that was the book that maybe as like a 15-year-old, a 14-year-old, that was, it just rocked me, like completely took me for a, to, took me for a spin. Uh-huh. Um, later books, I mean, uh, I could get into books forever for, on this. On yeah, podcast, we could do a whole podcast about that. Totally, but I, and I think that reading is one of the most important ways to write better, mm-hmm. um, and that's kind of one of the biggest uh, recommendations that all my mentors have said. Of, yeah, you know, to be able to play, you know, jazz, to be a jazz drummer, you got to listen to a lot of jazz, mm-hmm. um, and to be a writer in particular genres. Um, you got to read. You got to read the canon. And yeah. so I think I'm still very much a student. Um, I wasn't an English major in, in undergraduate. I wasn't like a, you know, naturally gifted writer. Um, I'm still totally working. I'm a workhorse to figure out how to make this make this happen. Sure. And so I'm I'm vehemently like I'm studying uh, voraciously about uh, how to write better, how to how to communicate better. Um, Gary Snyder, Bill Plotkin, uh, Naomi Klein. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Wallace Stegner. Uh, I mean, the list goes on. Yeah. yeah. So, you're, so you're sort of developing this, this, you know, this, this, this passion for storytelling, but also, hey, this natural world is under great stress mm. from all these different dimensions. You're trying to marry these two. At what point did you really become develop some heightened awareness of the environmental world around you and, and your role in helping protect it and, and, and raise awareness for that importance? Yeah, um, I think that came from uh, really gr- like uh, spending a big chunk of time in the Pacific Northwest in Portland um, yeah. in my early 20s. Um, that's also kind of the time that trail running came into my life mm-hmm. as, a, as a really kind of obsession of mine and getting into these public lands every single day. Yeah. Um, on the, almost like to a fault. It was, it was like a very kind of uh, disproportionate amount of my time was spent in the, in the woods uh, doing, uh, practicing this. And that's kind of the nature of the long distance running space. Is yeah. You just spend absurd amounts of time by yourself on the trails. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But and it does teach you this importance of one, just the perspective of, wow, how vast these open spaces are. And it does sort of, it, it, it kind of creates this, it's like a juxtaposition between our, our insignificance in the face of all this natural beauty and scale and scope, but also you know, when you come back out of the woods and you see the impact humans have had on the natural world, or, or impact, I don't know if that's the right word, but the, how these two things interface is, is, I think, a really powerful experience associated with that trail running. Totally, Justin. And I think uh, something, I had a conversation recently with somebody about public lands as, um, as, a, as training ground, which is mm. kind of interesting and a new uh, way of looking at our public lands, our, wild, our federally designated wild spaces and, and national forests, um, certain, more so, I guess, wilderness areas. But um, as, as both a mirror to our own uh, self-willed uh, capacities to yep. to grow and reciprocate what we have, the gifts that we have, and and to give back to the to the place, and also a training ground to uh, to basically train to to live as a as a steward for these places. Um, and and again, like you know, I I have to be honest and say that you know, trail running, long distance running was a conduit to to, to access these places, mm-hmm. and which have already kind of been designated. I realize, and a lot of it was. You know, you're in your head about your own life and your own selfish kind of activities. And, but in the end, you know, you, you're spending 20 hours a week um, passing through these places, these training grounds, these mirrors to our own, uh, our own potentials, I think. And, and it's, it's up to us to be able to, to figure out the, the quality of that relationship, that experience. And some days the quality is uh, very harmonious with that place. And some days they're totally in my own head about job and girlfriend and debt and you know all these things that we that we kind of stress about um but they're patiently waiting for us there and 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 again i realized that you know a lot of work has been put into designating these places uh, and, and protecting these places mm-hmm. and so i think at some point there was a moment and and maybe like several years ago living in portland where i realized that um that that's a dynamic uh narrative that's a dynamic process that is not um you know wild spaces aren't permanently uh permanently designated they're subject to change sure and based as on is everything as is everything um and something kind of t-boned me in that time i think occupy wall street was another big mm-hmm. uh kind of stimulator for me i, I totally was not a, an activist in high school was not you know picketing anything was pretty like run like middle middle way approach sure. uh politically pretty moderate something about uh occupy like woke woke me up and at a time where um, 
long distance running was getting me in these places. Yeah, and yeah. then also there was this, this kind of banking, um, greed kind of, uh, sensibility coming from, from wall street. And I just, I mean, Portland was on fire. Portland mm-hmm. was, uh, the biggest big part of the culture there. Yeah, yeah. It was a big part of the culture. I think it was the biggest camp outside of, uh, outside of New York, about Manhattan. And so I just kind of got swept up in this whole scene and, and I po- like flung out of there, um, a little bit like traumatized. But also a lot, a lot of it inspired, yeah. um, and I didn't know what to do with that, and that's what brought me to. Uh, I left Portland, I left my job, and I really started asking myself, what What is it that I love doing, and what? How does that relate to uh, um, an honest human relationship with with the world, and my 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 honest relationship with the world? Yeah, and so fast forward a little bit. You know, one of my sort of first, you know, sort of knew each other from the the running scene. We'd meet each other at races, and briefly, just sort of as one passes the other, like, hey, hey, we know, blah, blah, blah. But um, you know, one when you sort of really got on my radar screen for the work you do is with this this film about the gold mine in Mexico you produced. And at the time, trail running was ascendant as far as the public awareness of these people running these ultra distances and. And brands were starting to promote themselves as far as attaching themselves to athletes and telling stories about the various things they were doing. And your film was different in the sense that it, in my view, was kind of the first to really marry the running activity with some sort of an activism goal and to have a real genuine sort of symbiosis between the method, you know, the, the message and the method. So, and I'm not trying to criticize other films, but a lot of films were like, hey, I'm going to run across Wyoming to raise awareness for you know, some ailment, right? Which, which is great. I mean, go run, do that thing you want to do, raise awareness, raise some money, whatever. But there's sort of like a, a thinness to that, if that makes sense. Totally. Where your film came out, it was like, okay, this activity is integral to the issue at hand. So you, uh, we're... I'm not really painting the picture well enough, but so what was the issue and, and how did you decide on a running film to kind of tell that story? Yeah. Um, thanks a lot for that. Um, I backing up a few months before, um, that, that happened in the spring of 2013 mm-hmm. to give, to give some context. But prior to that, I just run Western States, the, the 2012, which Western States, for those that don't know, yeah. are, uh, it's kind of the biggest hundred mile foot race in the world mm-hmm. it's in premier Cal- hundred mile race in california premier to, to, to uh, auburn california exactly um somehow finagled my way got a golden ticket uh re- had a really good race but um kind of felt like something had ended uh in, in some ways not not that running had ended for me but some some shift when i hit that finish line you know 18 hours in i was I was kind of spent uh, physically for sure, but also kind of psycho spiritually in some ways that some, something had shifted in my gravitational center mm. after that race. And I had to really ask myself, I think it was probably overtraining all these things kind of wrapped up in it. Um, but something was ending and with endings come beginnings. And I think that, um, something's shifted where I had to ask myself what this practice was leading me towards. Well, as you said, like 20 hours a day, a week, that's your huge, it's, you know, it's a huge allotment of physical and mental and just career or you know, resources toward this one end. Yes. So I, I just sort of setting the stage here, like to complete Western states takes a huge commitment on so many dimensions of your life. So I can Absolutely. see how this reaching the finish line is symbolic 
and maybe um, inspirational in a lot of different dimensions. Yeah, I mean, you couldn't have said it better. I, I think that it really asked, I had to ask myself what my priorities were. Right. And I have X amount of time in my life. I have, you know, am I being overly selfish here? Am I, are my relationships being served? Is my, the bigger work that I need to do in the world, is that being addressed? A lot of the, the answers for me at that point were no. Like yeah. they, they were kind yeah, of yeah. being set aside. I Something's was, out of whack. Yeah. Spend three hours a day doing this thing and at the expense of a lot of other uh, more professional goals and, 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 and kind of ambitions. So anyway, not to get too far into that, fast forward, I end up moving to Mexico, to yep. Baja, uh, to a small town called Todos Santos, where I had visited before in the past and had some relationship with some folks there and uh, was house-sitting um, and started kind of meeting folks. Uh, actually, it kind of started where I... Uh, street art. I was walking kind of down these, these kind of alleyways and started seeing all this amazing kind of street art about an open pit gold mine up in the mountains of Southern Baja in yep. the Sierra de Laguna mountains. And I started kind of asking around who's behind this. Is this a problem? Is this an actual threat or is this old? Realized that it, in fact, it was a, an ongoing struggle. Uh, f- uh, a Canadian led kind of gold mine in the uh, was a Canadian-led gold mining company was were trying to get permits to open pit mine in these mountains. Okay. The biggest problem about that is uh, that uh, water, essentially. There's, like, very little water in the Baja Peninsula. Right, mining is hugely water-intensive. This particular and... mining process is, is particularly uh, water-intensive. Yeah. It just didn't make sense on an ecological uh and ecologically and and also kind of socially. It just it felt a, it, it felt off, and it felt like the the— Peninsula is mobilized to check this sure. and, and to run environmental, you know, some sort of kind of um, check on, on on giving these permits. But they were seemingly like going ahead pretty quickly. Um, there had been a bunch of efforts to stop it there to, to varying degrees of success. I start kind of sitting in on meetings uh, in this small town of environmentalists, lawyers, business owners, um, all Mexican, with the exception of a few, mainly, I mean, 100% Mexican-driven led. And uh, they were looking for a new a new campaign. Uh-huh. And something fresh. Something fresh. And I had an idea that um, how about we run across the peninsula in a day? How, how about we, we start in the Sea of Cortez on the east side of the peninsula? It's, I think, like the fifth like, largest peninsula in the world. It's, mm-hmm. it's massive. And we run... We run, bike, walk, crawl, whatever it took, uh, human-powered. Get over the top. Get over the top from east to west, 70 miles from La Ribera to Soto Santos. And we end in the plaza of this epic uh, pueblo for like a, an evening of, of talks and, you know, and seminars and traditional dance. Sure. And, and just, just to be clear, like we're not talking about like a flat run across yeah. a beach. Yeah. I mean, this is rugged, remote remote country totally never yeah. I, like i had gone up i had run up uh the highest mountain a few times uh to check out the route but essentially had no idea what i was like what, what i was getting myself into and yes there was a seven thousand foot mountain range from sea level so a seven thousand vertical foot wall uh from the you know from the start sure and very few people had run it before i had to do i had to check it out in sections i would like I would camp out at ranch families. Ranch families would put me up in the deep in the in the mountains, and I would kind of sleep on cots out, outside, uh, and wake up in the morning. They'd like show me the way, and you know it was like this kind of two month process of, yeah. of putting together the route. And essentially, what you exactly what you said, the route was very intentional in that it cut right into the uh, proposed mining site. Sure. So yeah. Essentially, yeah. we were taking like we were organizing a media strategy to 
kind of experientially get in there and see what like the heart the heartbeat of the place. And it wasn't just you. Like you you were bringing like once the the route was set, yeah. you're bringing in this whole tribe of really interesting characters. Totally. Some of which had never even contemplated moving on any. You know, sort of self-propelled method that far, right? Absolutely. I mean, I, I showed up in the morning, had no idea if anybody was going to be there. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> no idea. And uh, Come one, come all. Yeah, and there was probably maybe a couple dozen people, um, mi- most of, many of which were just doing the first section, like yeah. 20 miles, um, and the, kind of the approach from the east side. But then a few guys were like, no, we're doing the whole thing. You know, they're, they're, we're they're, in. I think they were both from La Paz. Uh, one guy was like a... I think he was like a car dealer, you know, a car dealer or something. The other was, you know, who knows what he did. But he, he had just done the Iron Man. He's like this short little kind of stout guy. Uh-huh. And they were just ready. They had like a, you know, uh, like a plastic, they had like a water bottle in their hands. And they sure. had no other like gels or they didn't have any gear. It was just, let's do this. We're in. <laughs> Three in the morning, guns go, you know, gun goes off. Uh, and we, we start going west. And, you know, 18 hours later, we make it over, up and over. And we... Uh, Jump in the Pacific Ocean. Right, right. So, so let's fast forward from that a little bit to okay. So, and I'm going to make some assumptions here, but sure. I'm assuming you're tabbing in at this point. Like, okay, you know, I, I I can sort of do this thing, this storytelling thing, and apply it to areas where I have passion. And, and then you move to to get some formal training here at the University of Montana. So, what was what was it about this? I mean, you sort of laid out why you decided to come here, but let's yeah. talk about the craft of narrative and storytelling and um, what makes for a good story and what makes for ineffective story um, and this trade-off between simplicity and complexity. I'm so fascinated by this, um, not in term- not only in terms of the work you do, but in how brands operate and how right. political campaigns operate and how leaders operate within an organization. So I'll just sort of throw that out there. It's like, came to this place to get some formal training what did you learn that's worked for you, and and, and how has that jived with your your personal um, journey as well? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I, I, one thing stepping back a few years, um, I, my work in Portland was was working with the marketing and communications yeah. at, at a nonprofit doing intercultural education. So I think that also, I mean, it's one of those adages of like you got to fold everything into your path. You know, that kind of cliche, but that's totally true. I mean, I was kind of painstakingly doing this kind of marketing work that I. I, I loved in so many ways because of what you just said, the narrative, the, uh-huh. the, the, uh, the, the messaging, the, the, the kind of um, conventions of persuasion. Uh, certainly when it relates to something that you love and that you really wish that students would consider, in, my, in, in this particular example, studying abroad. Sure. I, I, I woke up every day and went to work and felt truly that the work I was doing was helpful and suggesting this, this opportunity. Mm-hmm. So that, you know, that really kind of set a stage for then thinking about how narrative as it relates to environmental protection and as it relates to the human relationship with the natural world, how those those tools that I, I, I learned in kind of the marketing communications world could be then applied to a more creative, personalized uh, story grid, story craft. Right. Um, uh, and so I think that that then kind of T-boned me as I then you know, said yes to a graduate program at the University of Montana, um, got a gig teaching English uh, here, and through that process uh, was thrown in the hot seat, was thrown mm-hmm. in workshops. Yeah, and yeah. Justin, man, I mean, the I've never been, like, uh, to be honest, uh, just to be transparent, I've never, like, gone to much counseling in my life, but the closest thing that I've gotten to a psychotherapy session have been in workshops, graduate-level writing workshops. Sure. Because you bring in, you know, you say you, uh, you write a 5,000-word essay about something, say about this crossing. 
uh, and I, you know, you, you bring it out, you print it 15, 15 copies. Everyone gets copies. They read it ahead of time. You come in and you just get reamed. You know, oh, you yeah. get, and, and, and I did. And I, and I'll look back at stuff that I wrote in 2013. I'm just cringeworthy, but, um, that's where the growth happened. That's Absolutely. where the growth happened. You sit there and you, you, you take, uh, not only the line by line edits on kind of just faults of, of, of syntax, but also the unconscious, the subconscious, the undercurrent of, mm. of the story. What is it that like you're telling up here on the top? And then what is it that you're really um, communicating down under? And uh, that those kind of those levels of play on story just like woke me up and, fa- and it was fascinating to me. Uh, and, and, and I also realized how, how much work I had, to, had had left to do and still to this day, like complete student. Um, right. But then as a, as a, as a reader yourself, or as a viewer of content or whatever, you're also, you're not only applying these new tools to your own creative narrative, but you're also sort of able to critique and see those layers in right. other in other outlets as well. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, I, one thing, this is probably fairly obvious, but maybe not. Um, a lot of the work on ecology and, and, and environmental humanities uh, has traditionally um, kind of omitted the human human mm-hmm. and so like nature writing has been this kind of like meditation on uh on on things out there at the and, and kind of absent human uh experience and yet i mean some of my biggest mentors you know william Bois, who i just spent a week with on the salmon river with this amazing um outfitter called the free flow institute of which uh-huh. i'm a, on the board and a co-facilitator he keeps saying i mean he's a pulitzer prize finalist uh, writer he's like Humans are so integral in the conversation about the the natural world and how we you know how we experience it. And to you know we need for writing for the best kind of masterpieces of, of craft are like the characters are central. You know a character, a good character or a good uh, the tension that we carry with us, uh, the tension that we you know crime and punishment. There, there there would be no novel without like the the characters in that book. Right. Um, you have to have compelling uh, characters that really convey the tension of how we as humans relate to our, our niche in the world. Um, and so when I approach this master graduate degree, you know, environmental humanities, envi- nature writing, you know, you, you, you so often think of this just kind of, um, uh, kind of essays on, on the wild forests. And really, I mean, what I've, what I've taken away is that that is so important, that observation, that attunement, that attention um, is central. But also, you know, we can't forget that humans are part of that conversation. We are, we are central. We're, we're not central to that conversation, but we are an integral part. And in, and in, and to include hu- the human kind of eyeballs in our stories are important, right? Too. I think that rhetorically, and as someone who likes to read stories, I also like to the personal the personal dimensions really uh, important to me. And so, in my work, I've I've kept myself in a lot of the essays. Not for selfish ends, but um, thinking that that's a, rhet- a rhetorical move. That, that 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 is being honest with my my readers and my mm-hmm. myself. That I'm I'm here. I don't have the answers. I'm totally like uh, going through this experience with you. I think that aligns a little bit with kind of some debate in journalism about like, is is it possible to have objectivity, right. or is ob- ob- is objectivity even a goal that to one to to which one should aspire? Mm-hmm. You know, this notion of the view from nowhere. Uh, whereas others would say, no, you have to put yourself in the story. Put you know, be transparent with your, with your, you know, perspectives, biases, whatever you want to call them, and your background and how that relates. I mean, I, I think that 
there's a truth to that way of storytelling that um, that just seems more genuine. Yeah, and I think I think you're totally right. And there's good, there's effective ways of doing that, and you know, there's heavy-handed ways of doing that. Yeah, and that's absolutely. totally the the art and science of what I'm I'm so compelled and interested to do. I mean, for example, I, I was in Butte yesterday, um, and a couple years ago, uh, I wrote a story. I, I walked I walked around the print the whole perimeter of the Berkeley Pit mm-hmm. uh, and it, as a kind of a Jeez, kind of a, how long did that take? It took forever. It was like a uh, I think it was like a 15 hour. Yeah, uh, walk. It was a twenty mile walk, but it was there's trespassing. It was sketchy, uh, but it was it was a it was an es- it was an experience that turned into a story um, that that is part of the manuscript that I'm working on, a bigger uh-huh. book manuscript. And I joined this uh, kind of old timey geohydrologist from Butte who had spent his whole life there, had studied the kind of uh, the water dynamics there, had worked with Arco, but had also worked with like community organizers. He had this incredible kind of sacred balance of, of understanding place. And he was right in the kind of crosshairs of industry meets conservation meets all these things. And he was kind of seemingly respected by all kind of fronts. Um, and it's a long story, but we, we became friends uh, through – I was working at the University of Montana and met him through a kind of a field trip that I was organizing. And he mentioned wanting to walk around the perimeter of the Berkeley Pit. Mm-hmm. He's like, I've been living here forever. I want to really – I want to someday – no one's ever done it. Um I'm getting pretty old, you know. I'm considering doing this. And at the time, I was working, I was working on a manuscript that involves um, a really clunky word, circumambulation, so circuitous walking around sacred sites. Oh, interesting. Um, okay. So a lot of my research so this is right in your wheelhouse. Totally, but totally like not too. In, in that all the all the examples up until that moment were you know these very kind of low hanging fruit you yeah. know locations like Mount Kailash in Tibet where right. people walk a 50k around this beautiful Maybe mountain. Maybe the opposite of a sacred site. Yeah, but, it's but an, it's, no less important. Totally, it's a it's an inverted hole in the earth, kind of a mountain inverted. Um, sacred maybe to some, sacred to, you know, the copper barons or sacred to the folks that live there and, you know, fed their families every day. Sure. You know? Yeah, yeah. So so the whole piece, so we so I joined him. So I said, hey, Joe, I'm coming, I'm going to meet you and we're going to do this. And I met him at four in the morning and we like drank some coffee together and we walked for the next 15 hours around wow. this thing. And we crawled, you know, jumped fences and like hid behind trees to evade, you know, security guards and made it around, made it around the tailing ponds and everything and up, up and over the Continental Divide and had to walk some freeway miles. And we got to the end. And, you know, one thing, the story of of talking about the Berkeley Pit and that, that kind of that gash in the earth that will be here in perpetuity mm-hmm. for us um, was best told through the eyes of this man, of Joe. But I wanted to be there with him. I, it wasn't my story to tell of his I mean, it, I told it, but I was also, I, I wanted to respect his story enough to join him. Yeah, and, and participate. It, right. And so I, 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 it's my take that, that stories are, are impact, impactful when they are shared and when they're kind of experienced, that kind of gonzo journalism, but, but maybe kind of transposed upon a more environmental lens. Um, and that was, I mean, I was, I was teared up after that. I mean, it was an incredible experience. Sure. And, I mean, even more incredible was that he brought a couple jars with him. And he one of his one of his like life tasks was to go up to the north end of the pit where water was kind of shedding off the the divide and capture native water like water that had been pure before it hit the before it hit the pit the pit yeah and jar it up bring it back to the upper bow creek up to and, and put it back into the it back in. into the water system yeah wow. so I, I I like joined him for this from uh, for this work that he wanted to do mm-hmm. it was this and he's again he's a science hyper rational minded folk you know guy. 
but also just had this beautiful kind of artistic way about him yeah, that wanted to. That was his pilgrimage, yeah. and I just like was witness to that. Oh man, it was intense. So one of the things I think about Nick with your work is this trade-off between you know a simple story and a complex story. Like a simple, if you think about you know from a branding perspective or you know leadership messaging or organizational communications. Like hey, clear, simple, consistent message this has to be digestible. Yet with something like you know environmental advocacy, climate change public lands, et cetera, and there's so much richness and complexity to it. How do you view that trade-off? And then, two, your stories by nature, at least the stories of yours that I've consumed, are complex, and that's a beauty to them. But how do you get people in the door to kind of give you enough of their own bandwidth to pay attention? I think that's the... That's a, that's the that's a big question. That's a million dollar question. Yeah, that's yeah, a million yeah. dollar okay. question. And I think what I've what I've come to the conclusion of is that um, you know I think that there's this tendency to there's a tendency to either or kind of that that answer. Okay. Um, either you you know to to really fully address climate change and look it in the eyes you. You go to personal stories. That's like a huge. You know, a lot of surveys say like the best way to change behavior uh, or like conceptions about climate change is to make it personal, to make it local, to localize the people living on the on the on the train lines yep. uh, that are that are who you know. Are, there's kind of health, kind of adverse health effects to coal dust, for example, mm-hmm. here in Mont- Missoula, for example. Um, or you you know then then there's like the big kind of big science of like. Those stories don't mean anything. That's too small. We need to go big, big picture. But as we were speaking earlier, you know, evolutionarily, we're our kind of monkey minds um, have a really hard time uh, being able to digest the scale of what's upon us right now, and then to be able to catalyze that or alchemize that into into action. Right. So often we we, we take that in through our esophagus and we we spit it out in despair and we spit it out <laughs> into like it's too big. I can't. I can't. Yeah, yeah. I can't, I can't touch do it. it. Can't Why touch bother? It. Why bother? Um, and I think that it's almost, that's fair. And that's actually probably maybe true. And I I don't want to be like, um, hopeless, but maybe it is too big. And, but that's not to say that it's not worth, uh, showing up every day to, 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 to talk about kind of solutions. Sure. And to talk about how in, in this moment of climate kind of runaway climate catastrophe, can we still maintain a, a, how we can still elevate and level up to being uh, fully human. Mm-hmm. What, what is maybe maybe I'll ask this question and maybe I'm not answering this totally straight on. But what what is it that our particular climate moment right now is inviting us into? That's that's what I ask myself a lot. And I asked when I was thinking about our conversation this morning. I was thinking about how what what is the climate? How is that galvanizing us to take action in some way? What what is it? What is it asking of us? What what is the four hundred parts per million uh, CO two in the atmosphere suggesting we we respond with? And I think that I think it's almost one of the best opportunities we have ever yet to to put together some semblance of a unified planetary response that that to something that is that is a challenge to us yeah, and to yeah. elevate as a as a community, both as a planetary community and and very much kind of localized and in place. Yeah, it would seem like at all levels of human existence, the individual, the community, collective, all the way up to sort of, you know, the way governments organize on a global perspective or don't organize, whatever the case may be, like 
climate change is an issue that challenges us in a way to come up with solutions that, that are going to take the best that humans can come up with. Sure. At least I think so. Sure. And I mean, as we were saying earlier, you know, it's almost counterintuitive to think that that solution might just be right here in Missoula right. or right here in my kitchen or right here in my dietary choices or right here in my bicycle over my car or right here, you know, and it's, it's so easy to wash those away as being not big enough because mm -hmm. the problem is planetary. So how can the solution be local? Yeah. Um, and that's the work that we're, 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 we're in. I mean, West Jackson, um, he, uh, you know, dryland farmer, incredible kind of writer, philosopher, said that, you know, we're, we're in desperate need of a cultural homecoming, to come home, to come home. And I, I keep on seeing this in all these books I'm reading, um, is that we're, we need to – the, the task now is to come home. Uh, and, and, again, to come home to our bioregions, to come home to learn the, the plants and animals that we live next to, uh, maybe to come home and listen a little better to our community, both human and more than human. Um, this is the task that I fail at often. Yeah. And I'm, I personally am in a – kind of a wrestling match with finding that, that home and coming home. Mm -hmm. But I do, there is an intuitive sense that that might be the, the best way uh, to respond to what's happening. Um, and to also hold in the planetary conversations, to like take in the science, to take in the big discussions about climate refugees, uh, to, to take in the big discussions about sea level, sea level rise, to, to really take that in too. I think it's important to not be too like in your privilege bubble to be able to put that put that big uh that big conversation away too um but but i think that there's there's some connection to uh the planetary sized solutions um being responded to with uh a planet full of local responses does that yeah. make sense yeah it does it does and um it makes me think about like this this the cultural homecoming you mentioned there that's just such a powerful idea and is that an idea that you're I, I want to turn in the last few minutes we have together to be able to talk about this manuscript you're reworking you're working on and and some of the you know I don't want to reveal you probably don't want to reveal too much it's but all good like <laughs> what are some of the broad themes and, and is this cultural homecoming as yeah. is, is that part of this work yeah I, th I think it is Justin um I think that so in a elevator speech this whole book that I've been wrestling with for the last four years that was part of my graduate uh, thesis right. here at the U um, which I got some incredible guidance from here at the University of Montana. Um, I wouldn't, this would not be in existence without, without this university. But essentially, it's a, it's a seven-part story about um, exploring the pan-cultural phenomenon of humans walking around uh, areas, landscapes of significance. Mm -hmm. So there's this, you know, in every habitable continent, on most in most religious traditions, we find this uh, practice of circumambulation. Yeah, you use this yeah. fancy term before. It's circumambulation, it's like yeah. amble. Is amble. that the core word? Yes, okay. exactly. It's an annoying term. Uh, the Tibetans actually use the word kora, which is a much more succinct, oh, I like that. beautiful term. Um, so let's just use kora for now. Um, essentially, kind of uh, became obsessed with this this idea that uh, that humans would kind of. Uh, circuitously walk around something important to them and what, what that meant, what, what, the, what the significance of that was. And it took me on this crazy four-year journey of uh, travel to Mount Kailash in Western Tibet uh -huh. with a bunch of spiritual kind of tourists. Uh, it was a really interesting story. And again, going back to our conversation about rhetoric and effective communication, that chapter is both about the, the power of this mountain that we end up in, but also the kind of quirky, 
uh, Western conceptions of how we got there, myself included. I, I you know, I, I, I am, I am first to call my own kind of cultural blind spots out. Mm-hmm. And but getting to this mountain, all that it took to get there, and this kind of amazing walk um, that happens, and the characters that I walked with. But essentially, it, it moves through uh, landscapes, and it really kind of breaks down this idea that um, that circuitous motion is something that is ubiquitous in the natural world, like uh, the seasonality, this, the cyclical nature of 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 uh, revolution, right? Sure. So, so the word revolution, which is seen, is, which is described in a chapter, yeah. the word itself was uh, born in the stars, the celestial revolving of, of planets and. and um, and it's, it's really embedded that word etymologically in, in the natural world. And then it was kind of co-opted for, uh, human kind of revolt and human sure. kind of transformation, political transformation, which is fascinating to me. And I, I try to kind of wed those two of this ubiquity of revolution in the natural, and that revolution is kind of what guides us. The revolution is the kind of the frame or the, the, the shape of political, personal, and, and, environmental transformation yeah and so I, I explore that every chapter deeper and deeper through walking revolution like walking revolving around landscapes and I do that in, in Tibet I do that uh, I follow uh, an old kind of beat poet trail in Northern California where in the 60s uh, I think Gary Snyder and Allen Ginsberg and Philip Whalen um, did this kind of really classic 14 mile loop around Mount Tamalpais uh-huh. and one of these chapters I, I kind of re walk that that trail with a bunch of folks that have done it for years and kind of track their their poetry and their sensibility of bringing that kind of eastern philosophy to the western world and and then yeah we get to uh berkeley pit, berkeley pit chapter and a few sure. other and a few other yeah. a few other chapters too and so what's the um what's the timeline on this project yeah the timeline uh, that's like the worst question <laughs> you can ask an author right it's, it's good no i mean i i'm this is my first stab at anything larger than a 10,000 word essay sure. or something. So it's yeah, it's a big project. Totally poking in the dark here. Um, there's some promising, there's some po- promising kind of o- doors opening. Um, I would love to say in the next like two years, it, it might, or okay. like a year, it might yeah. be a thing. Yeah. Um, but that's just a public announcement so that I can get on my horse and make it happen. But again, going back to, you know, I get up every morning at six in the morning um, and look at this, stare at this thing. And I'm, I'm not like, someone who's naturally gifted at writing. So I just have to, I, I, coming, going back to like long distance running days, putting in two to three hours a day. Yeah, got to grind. I want to look at that thing and just be with it. And I've been doing this for a long time. Yeah. And I care, this, this story means like the absolute world to me. And, and I really want to share it with people. Um, well, so, let's hope, let's hope a year from now that we're in this, well, maybe a different room, but maybe... Talking about this together yeah. uh, in a way that's uh, actively promoting a tangible book co- cover and yeah. something that people can actually go and consume. Let's hope so. Um, and in the meantime, Nick, I mean, there's so much richness to your whole story that we didn't even get into. But I want to give listeners, as, as we close here, how, how can listeners who've been intrigued by this and want to learn more, how can they find out more about your work and, and, and where can they find you online? Yeah, thanks, Justin. I'm, I'm just honored that you uh, invited me to come on. Um, I I have a website, nicholastriolo.net, which seems to be kind of the repository for... Sure, we'll put a link to that in the show notes for Show sure. notes seems to be kind of a repository for publications and films and such. Um, I'm actually currently the editor for uh, Orion Magazine's um, online blog, so I'm doing a lot of uh, really cool content, and they've, they've really opened a lot of doors for me to meet some incredible storytellers in, mm-hmm. this, in this vein of thought. Um, 
so I'm on there uh, pub- publishing quite often. And um, yeah, I guess Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all those classic platforms. Which uh, they can find through your through your website. Yeah, it's all it's all probably that that might be the best way to find it. Um, yeah. Well, Nick, thanks for stopping by on your way to Bend That's to right. sort of launch on your next adventure. But I hope our paths cross again soon. Thanks, Justin. Appreciate it. All right, fun conversation with Nick. I encourage you to check out his work. That guy is changing the world uh, and using narrative and storytelling to do it. So check out his work. Okay, coming up next week, we got local rock star John Wicks, drummer for Fitz in the Tantrums, and just all around awesome guy, mountain athlete, the owner and founder, co founder with, with his wife Jenna of Drum Coffee with two locations and now a roastery here in Montana or in Missoula. So uh, awesome to sit down with John and a connoisseur of used Eurovans as well. We talk about that in the beginning of the pod. So anyway, we'll see you next week. Remember that A New Angle was brought to you by CED, Consolidated Electrical Distributors. They're one of the largest electrical wholesale suppliers in the country with nearly 600 locations. CED is a privately owned business-to-business company that distributes just about every piece of equipment you need to keep your lights on, your energy flowing, and your lifestyle comfortable. CED is also an important employer in our community, and they have a keen interest in University of Montana graduates. To explore career opportunities, check out www.cedcareers.com. And if you enjoy this podcast, there are several ways you can support it. First, please rate us on iTunes. Ratings help others find the podcast. Second, write a review. The more reviews we get, and hopefully positive ones, the more we can grow. And third, please just tell your friends about it. As we wrap, I'd like to thank a few folks for making this podcast happen. First off, thanks to Elizabeth Willie, Communications Director at the University of Montana College of Business. And thanks to our fabulous interns, Savannah Sletton and Max Gibson. And I'd also like to give a special shout-out to VTO for providing us with music. And finally, thanks to my producer, Jeff Meese. As we go, if you have any questions, suggestions, comments, insults, whatever, please email me at anewangle at umontana.edu. Help us spread the word and be sure to use the hashtag a new angle when you do. Thanks a lot and see you next time.